It's Wednesday, May 23rd, and this is The Daily Dive. When is the right time to move out of your parents' house? For 30-year-old Michael Rotondo, the time had come and went, so much so that his parents took legal action to evict him from their house. His parents sent him a number of eviction notices and finally took him to court, but Michael was still fighting to stay. We will speak to Justin Page, a reporter for CNY Central, who was in court for the verdict and will tell us how the judge ruled. I hate to burst your bubble now that vacations and summer is on its way, but the CDC just came out with a report that says beware of hotel pools. You don't want to catch something nasty after taking a dip. Rachel Becker, science reporter for The Verge, will break down what the CDC said, but here's the short version. Don't poop or pee in the pool. Finally, we will speak with Rich Shapiro, a journalist in New York, to go over the incredible true story of the collar bomb heist. The story is the subject of Netflix's latest true crime show, Evil Genius. It's an amazing story with lots of twists and turns, so we will be releasing this interview in three parts over the next few days. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We don't talk, we see how it goes way. So we just don't communicate. I I just wanted, you know, a reasonable amount of time to vacate with consideration the fact that I was not really prepared to support myself at the time where I was served these notices. I don't see why the judge wants to throw people out on the street. Joining us now is Justin Page. He's a reporter for CNY Central in Syracuse. He was in court for this curious case of Michael Rotundo. Justin, please tell us what this whole case is about. It seems like it's something that happens to a lot of families, but not so publicly. Definitely not as public as this. It's definitely bizarre on its surface. It's a 30-year-old guy who has been asked to leave his parents' house who's refusing to do so, and they've taken him to court. And that's where we were yesterday, where a judge did finally rule that he does need to leave the house. He'll be signing an eviction order here shortly and giving him uh, what he's saying a reasonable amount of time to pack his things and move out. But he's saying that his fight is not over yet and that he'll be filing an appeal to get a stay and eventually (laughs) stay in the house, I guess. That's That's his goal. How long was this going on for? I mean, I imagine my parents telling me, get the heck out of the house. And, you know, in a couple of weeks, you feel the heat and it's time to leave. But so how long had this been happening? Well, he says that his parents first started to uh, mention that they wanted him out of the house back in October. But it was uh, quickly after that November that they stopped paying for his food and started to do things like that. And then it was in February when he got the first written notice telling him that he had 14 days and he needed to leave. And that's when we kind of got into this whole court mess that we're in right now. That was the beginning of uh, the legal action that was taken. Official notices saying, you're evicted, you need to get out of here. Right. What was their relationship like? I mean, was he, has he always lived there? Did he move out and move back in? Did they finally get tired of him? I, it's That's the most curious part. What What happens to this family behind closed doors? I mean, that's a great question. I, I think I'd love to be a fly on the wall in there just for a day, but He did move back with his family eight years ago, so he's been living there for the past eight years. He did uh, move away for uh, at least a few years prior to that, but I think things really started to go south just within this last year here, again, starting in about October, November. So what was in some of those letters that they sent to him? One of them mentioned a broken-down car that had been in the driveway for an annoying amount of time to them up on block, so they said that he needed to get that fixed, and they would even help him financially there if they could do that by providing him $1,100 to get that done and kind of get his 
search going for an apartment and to kind of start his the next step in his life. But the other ones are very, they've got the legalese in there, and they, they're very blunt, and they just say you have a certain amount of time before you have to leave this house. And he's kind of taken those and built his own case against them, saying that he thinks he deserves at least six months' notice before he needs to leave. You were in court when the ruling came down yesterday. Describe to us that scene. How did the judge act? How did Michael and his parents act? The whole court appearance, really, the judge, you could kind of tell there was a little bit of a smirk, a little bit of a smile to his face at times, just of the fact that we were they were arguing this in court. His parents were sitting 20 feet away from on the other side of the courtroom watching their 30-year-old son plead his case as to why he shouldn't be kicked out of their house. But when the ruling came down, it did get a little testy. You could tell that that Michael uh, was was annoyed. He he asked for an adjournment at one point that the judge obviously rejected. He continued to, to give his statement there, but his decision. But uh, yeah, he was he was very testy, and he told the judge right away that he plans on appealing. And he was trying to schedule his appeal during this appearance, which of course is not not allowed. It's not proper procedure to do that. Just from reading some of stuff going on in the court, it said that the judge called his demand for six more months outrageous. And then Rotundo uh, responded by saying, your eviction order is outrageous. So, <laughs> to, you know, reading these things, it just seems like wacky court, just everything going haywire in there. Um, it was definitely a little surreal. It's definitely not the typical court appearance <laughs> you'd, you'd see. And, and it, that is true. He, he did say that he did say it was outrageous. Right when the judge gave his decision, you just heard, heard him say that it was outrageous. And reports also said that the judge was, had praised him for doing a bunch of legal research. He was representing himself, but... You know, they said that he did a good job of that. Is is that so? Yeah, I mean, he was citing case law. He was making his own motions. I mean, the judge really complimented him for his research and citing that case law. But the judge said he uh, missed at least one that um, kind of didn't qualify him for that six-month requirement of notice to leave. Uh, and even when he was complimenting Michael's legal research, Michael downplayed it, saying it only took a, a few minutes, a quick internet search, and that's all it took. I think he was trying to prove a point that this is a clear-cut case, that he should be given more time. He even downplayed the judge's compliments there, his praise, I guess. And after court, after the ruling came down, you got a chance to speak to him. Uh, what happened there? What did he say? Uh, well, as soon as uh, court ended, um, Michael left fairly quickly. I was kind of right near the door, so I ran out first, and I was the first reporter to approach him to see if he would be willing to speak on camera. I kind of had my camera on my shoulder, and, and he said he get, kind of gave me the, the motion to hold on one moment. He walked back into court to ask everyone else, all the other reporters and photographers in the courtroom, to come out, and he kind of threw this impromptu press conference uh, where he started answering people's questions as, as best he could, and uh, there was some strange answers in there. What, what, did, what did he say? Some of the things he said, as he mentioned in court, that he doesn't think he's a burden because he does pay for his own food, he does his own laundry. We kind of got a little bit more of an insight into the family dynamic that they don't communicate, they don't speak at all in the house, which is a little strange. He was very emphatic about the fact that he doesn't live in his parents' basement, he actually lives in a bedroom in the house, so... Well, he doesn't want to be considered a crazy basement guy, you yeah, know, playing exactly video games it. all day or something. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't want to be the basement guy, so he does live in a, in a bedroom there. Does he have a job? Does he do anything for money? Yes, he did say that he has a job. From some of the research we've done, we believe it's something to do with online, like an online type job, but we're not sure exactly what that is, and he wouldn't get into it at all. He was very... Um, very closed off about his work. He wouldn't kind of get into what line of work he's in. He said he didn't want to drag his business into this. But whatever it is, obviously, it's not supporting him enough financially to feel comfortable enough to, to make the move. Wow. That's just an amazing story. Uh, you know, like I said in the beginning, 
if a parent tells is kicking you out of your house, I mean, you, you feel the heat and you go, but this guy is fighting tooth and nail to stay. So very good report. Thank you very much. Uh, Justin Page, reporter for CNY Central in Syracuse. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Cryptosporidium is a tough little parasite. It can survive even in a a clean, you know, well-disinfected pool for days. Joining us now is Rachel Becker, science reporter for The Verge. So summertime is coming, vacations are coming, everybody's going out to hotels, water parks, things like that. I I will tell you just uh, for me personally, I never had a pool growing up. So whenever I get out to a hotel, weather permitting, that's one of the first things that I'm always looking forward to is getting in the pool, getting a great swim going. But the CDC just came out with a study. They were looking at a bunch of outbreaks over the past years, and they noticed that hotel pools specifically are one of the worst places to be going into. What did they come out with their findings? So they looked at about 500 outbreaks between the years 2000 and 2014 that were linked to pools, spas, water parks. And these outbreaks made more than 27,000 people sick. And they found that about a third of the outbreaks could be traced back to hotels, motels, inns, lodges, and their pools and hot tubs. Uh, One of the simple, big, simple rules that they say, uh, I thought it was kind of funny, and says don't let your your kids swim. If they're sick with diarrhea, I feel like that's a no brainer. But what else did they say about that? Right. I know. It's like the last thing I want to do is if if I have diarrhea is go in a swimming pool. But um, (laughs) they said, uh, don't swim or let your kids swim if sick with diarrhea. And the CDC's website actually says that uh, swimmers who are sick with diarrhea or who have been sick in the last two weeks risk contaminating the pool water with germs. And some of those germs can include this one bug uh, specifically called uh, cryptosporidium, which is a parasite that's really hard to kill with disinfectants. Okay, I want to come back to that one because I, there's a little bit more on that. But there's a couple of other uh, infections, diseases that you can get from being in some of this dirty water. One of them could lead to Legionnaire's disease. That's right. Yeah, it's called uh, it's a bacteria called Legionella, and it can cause this uh, dangerous pneumonia called Legionnaire's disease and also a flu-like illness called Pontiac fever. And that's one of the ones that older people need to be more mindful of and getting in a hot tub specifically. Yeah, that one is spread through uh, drop airborne infected droplets. So if you inhale them, it's a it's a problem, especially for people who are older, uh, who have compromised immune systems, who have uh, lung disease or are smokers. There's another infection that you can get could cause some skin rashes, what people call swimmer's ear. Which one are we talking about here? Yeah, that's pseudomonas, and uh, that's spread if you touch contaminated water, and it can cause rashes, can cause swimmer's ear, as you said. All right, and the major culprit, I know we already talked about it briefly, but cryptosporidium, this is the one that gives you diarrhea, the one that you do, do not want to get. Chlorine and bromine, things that they usually use to help sanitize the pools, these bugs can survive that stuff. They don't, uh, they're not easily killed by the chlorine. Yeah, it's cryptosporidium is a tough little parasite. It can survive even in a, a clean, you know, well disinfected pool for days. One of the grossest parts of this that I found, uh, and if you can shed some light on it, it says that the bacteria forms together and it creates something called a biofilm. What is this biofilm? Oh, goodness. It's hard to figure out how to explain biofilms. <laughs> They're basically this like slimy aggregation of bacteria 
it's, it's especially tough and they can sort of protect one another. They're hard to clean off of surfaces. So they clump together and they, you know, uh, greater in numbers kind of thing. And then it, the chlorine doesn't really kill them. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm curious, and I don't know if you know, uh, is this something that forms like on the top of the water or it can stick to the floor or something? Like if I step in a pool and I feel something slippery and slimy, is that what this is? I don't know. That's a really good question. Okay, just because I read these stories and now I'm hyper aware of it. So I'm going to keep looking out for these things. The CDC suggested that people buy their own test strips to test pH levels. And that just seems really like I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to the store and buy a test strip, test the water. And then if I see something nasty, I'm going to notify everybody and be the guy that killed everybody's vacation. But but that's what something that they're advocating for, to buy these test strips and, and do your due diligence before you get in a pool. CDC has this really handy dandy uh, checklist for how to make sure that the pool you're going into is um, healthy. One of them is to kind of, uh, you basically do your own inspection. So you can buy these little pH strips that change color and can tell you about the acidity level in the pool. You can also buy little kits that tell you how much chlorine's in the water. They tell you to look at whether the drain at the deep end of the pool is visible. I think that probably tells you if the water is murky or not. But I mean, in the end, these these are microscopic bugs, right? So even if the water is clean looking, there still might be something in it that could make you sick. Right. And and they also stress, you know, taking showers before you get into the pools, cleaning off the sweat and the oils in the body because that interacts with the chlorine and might not get all the cryptosporidium or things like that. It might uh, not disinfect properly. So I know that that's another big thing. Take a shower and obviously don't pee in the pool. Don't pee or poop in the pool, I think, is the big takeaway from both of these things. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Please don't poop or pee in the pool. The showering is to get the your sweat and your lotions off of the off of your skin before you get in the pool because those proteins can interact with the chlorine and form something called chloramines, and those can be irritating for you to breathe. They sort of float off of the surface of the water and can can irritate your lungs. All right. Well, hopefully um, none of us come down with any of this stuff. And I'm going to keep, like I said, I'm going to hyper aware now, so I'm going to keep looking at all the pools. Rachel Becker, science reporter for The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The device suddenly started emitting an accelerated beeping noise, beep, 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 that ended with it exploding and Brian Wells tragically uh, dying in the force of the blast. Joining us now is Rich Shapiro. He's a journalist based in New York, and he followed this specific case we're going to be talking about for years when it was happening. Rich, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. The story we're going to talk about is the incredible true story of the collar bomb heist. It's the subject of Netflix's latest true crime show, Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. But this is really interesting. There's a couple of key players that we can get to. I know it's a long story and we don't have much time, but let's start off with pizza delivery man Brian Wells. This is how everybody kind of came into the story. It was just so amazing, so crazy what happened to him. What what happened to Brian Wells? On August 28, 2003, Brian Wells walked into a bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. He had a, something bulging from the under the collar of his T-shirt, and he had what looked to be a cane in his hand. He handed the bank teller a note, basically announcing 
that it was a robbery and revealing that the device kind of dangling from his neck was in fact a bomb. The teller handed him a bag filled with cash. Brian Wells casually walked out of the bank and drove off, uh, but he didn't make it far. He was surrounded by state troopers less than a mile away, and he was handcuffed and put on the street. Um, he pleaded with those state troopers. He said that he has a bomb around his neck and that it's going to go off. Several minutes passed as the state troopers awaited for the bomb squad to arrive, and then the device suddenly started emitting an accelerated beeping noise, beep, 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 that ended with it exploding, and Brian Wells tragically uh, dying in the force of the blast. Now, I've, I've been able to see some video of this. Local news was there on the scene. They were getting this stuff. And the video is dramatic. You hear the beeps and the explosion comes and it, his chest literally blows up right there. They tackled the police, tackled him down, you know, and it wasn't until he said, I have a bomb here that complicated things because they had to call the bomb squad and follow procedure. But it, it goes on beyond that. You know, it he had this elaborate collar. That's what they call it, the collar bomb. It was like a handcuff around his neck and attached to that was the bomb. And there was like a series of uh, locks on it. It uh, we found out later through the investigation that it was a you know he had instructions on how to uh, unlock the collar. It was almost like a, a scene from the movie Saw, where you got to follow these instructions and play the game, and then you could possibly get out of this. And that kind of leads us into all the other players in this story. Tell us a little bit about the note that he had, and then how everybody else figures into this story. The investigators, when they went into his car, they found that he had these handwritten notes that essentially laid out what was a scavenger hunt with Brian Wells being directed to various locations in Erie, at which point he would receive a clue, a key and a clue for the next, for the location of the next site. The notes said that he had to uh, complete this in a, in a specific period of time uh, if he didn't, he would he would die. The the bomb would go off, and the only way for him to actually survive this was to complete the scavenger hunt and get the four keys that were required to actually unlock the device that was strapped around his neck. Later, we found out that whether the people perpetrating this on him gave up or not. There was really never any chance he had to take this collar bomb off. He was going to go either way. That's right. The, the investigators say that, that the device was rigged such that it was inevitable that it was going to explode and that there was actually no way to actually disable it. So let's forward wind in the story a little bit. There's uh, two major players here that were involved that were kind of, quote unquote, the masterminds. It seems like they came up with most of this plot, and it was, uh, let's see, Marjorie Deal Armstrong and Bill Rothstein. How do they figure into this? It's a good, it's a good question. They're, they're, they're both very bizarre characters with a complicated past. But basically, the authorities say that this, this entire plot was started with Marjorie Deal Armstrong, who wanted to hire a hitman to kill her father. And 
the way that she was going to pay that hitman was by using the proceeds from this bank robbery. Um, that's Marjorie Deal Armstrong's uh, involvement, and that's kind of how the, the, the crime came to be, according to investigators. Then you have her former boyfriend, a man named Bill Rothstein, who was a an eccentric, very intelligent uh, handyman who lived in, in Erie, Pennsylvania. And he was someone who lived not far from the location where Brian Wells delivered, made his final pizza delivery. And Bill Rothstein ended up dying before the police actually brought charges. And even up until, even on his deathbed, he denied that he had anything to do with this. But other other uh, members of this crime say otherwise. Okay, we will leave it there for today and pick it up tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll explore one of the strangest elements of the story. Brian Wells, the man who was blown up by the bomb, reportedly helped plan the bank heist. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us comments and give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.